Hi, this is Mark Raven. Welcome to episode 275 of Lean Blog Audio. This is a post from May 17th, 2019, titled, When Being Right is the Wrong Strategy for Change. I always enjoy the Kinexus User Conference. It's now called Kinexicon starting this year. And they asked me to give a talk each year. Last year, I gave a talk titled, When Being Right is the Wrong Strategy for Change. And Kinexus recently shared uh, it was a you know, nicely shot and edited video of that talk on YouTube. And so I'm sharing that um, here in this episode. If you want to see the video instead, or if you want to read a transcript, you can go to leanblog.org slash audio 275. There's also a link there to a shorter summary of the talk that was written and posted on the Kinexus blog. Thanks for checking it out. My theme here, maybe a bit provocative, is the idea when being right is the wrong strategy for change. Now I feel compelled to say when being Kai right is Kai wrong. No, we're going to do that for two days. <laughs> but I have to be careful. I'm standing up here on this platform, and when I talk about change management, I don't want to be the guy who's standing here saying, I'm right because that might be the wrong strategy for getting you to think about change management and engaging others in a little bit different way. So I, I wanna stand up here from the spirit of sharing some things that I feel like I've been fortunate to learn through some things I've been exposed to outside of the typical realm of lean and engineering and business school. But I also wanna share some lessons I've learned the hard way. So I'm not standing up here and saying, I'm the world's best change agent. But I want to try to share some ideas that maybe get us all thinking about what we can do to be better change agents. We can continuously improve the way we help people continuously improve. So we can think about helping others. And we can think of the, the visual here, the idea of shifting from being a leader who's a cop, who's you know, catching people doing the wrong thing, correcting people, writing people up, to being more of a coach. And it doesn't mean being so obnoxiously huggy. In healthcare, people hug. And when I got into healthcare, that, that, that freaked me out, because I'm like, you don't, you don't hug at work. It, you get sent to HR. You get sent to the HR cop, I guess. No offense to HR people who are here. But shifting that mindset of saying, well, I'm going to be supportive and help coach others up instead of knocking them down when they're doing the wrong thing. I think that's an important progression. So I think a lot of us would say we're coaches. It sounds nicer than saying consultant. But I think there's maybe another step we can take, and this is something I've challenged myself over the last couple of years. How can I go from being a cop to a coach to maybe being more of a counselor? Now, I'm not a licensed therapist, and I don't pretend to be one, but there are some lessons we can learn from this profession. To maybe shift from the old command and control environment and mindset of, well, I'm going to tell people what to do. Or the irony of, I'm going to tell you to submit ideas. I'm like, well, wait a minute, we're, we're engaging people in continuous improvement in a very command and control way. That might be something to pause and think about. So telling people what to do may just result in compliance. I did it because you told me to. 
And I think, you know, I'm preaching to the choir in this room that we aim higher than that. We want people to be intrinsically involved and motivated and excited to choose to participate in continuous improvement. So are we looking for compliance or are we just looking for, uh, are we looking for real uh, change that's a choice? So in the lean realm, we love asking why. And so this is, I think, part of the progression of shifting from telling people what to do to focusing on the why, starting from why, focusing on, on motivations and, and goals and reasons. But I think sometimes we fall into a trap of telling people why. So we don't just say, you need to put 10 ideas into Kinexus. We might say, you need to put 10 ideas into Kinexus because it will make your job easier or something like that. But there are lessons from the realm of psychology and counseling that make it, I think, fairly well proven that a more effective strategy is asking people why they would want to do something. Because one of your employees might not care about making their job easier. So you telling them you should participate in Kaizen because it makes your job easier may have zero connection to them as an individual. Another employee might really resonate with that. But different people are going to have their different motivations for participating. So it engaged people in a discussion of saying, hey, Clint, why do you think it's important to participate in continuous improvement? Is a more effective strategy for engaging people and leading to action, which is, I think, what we want as leaders and, and change agents. So we could ask why. I hear a lot of questions that start with why. Why aren't more leaders embracing lean management? Sometimes the fingers are being pointed in a different direction. Why aren't employees speaking up with ideas? Ethan Burris, who's joining us tomorrow, has done a lot of great research at UT about why employees choose to not use their employee voice. And I'm sure he's going to share a lot of great things with us. Why are some employees not using Kinexus? I bet that's something some of you might be struggling with or wondering about. Related to, to my new book, and you might ask, why aren't people using control charts? Why aren't people using statistical methods to analyze their metrics? We, we do this within Kinexus. We use the, does anyone else use the Kinexus control chart functionality? I hope, please. Some of you, all right, some of you do, right? So I might say, this is the right way to do metrics, but that runs the risk of creating pushback. If I'm so convinced in my rightness, it's a natural reaction for someone to say, well, no, I, I'm not going to do that because you told me to. I'm not necessarily going to do that because you're standing on a platform. We're going to help people internalize decisions so they make choices about change. So we can answer any of these questions. Why aren't people doing these things? Why aren't people doing what I would like them to do? Is it because they're dumb? Well, no. Is it because they don't care? Probably not. But it's this trap where, you know, we talk about the idea of a greatest strength can also be your greatest weakness. Learning new things, being excited about those new things. And not just being convinced about your rightness, maybe actually being right can be the biggest impediment to getting others to go along. Being right doesn't mean that others will automatically follow. And so as an engineer, 
I say, other people say this too, uh, I hear people describe themselves as recovering engineers. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Well, engineering school is really focused on calculating the right answer. Now, you emphasize teamwork and projects and things, but there's this kind of level of certainty that doesn't necessarily apply in the workplace. So we can focus not so much on coming up with the right thing to do, but also think about how we engage others. I love this quote, and I use it a lot, the late Peter Schultes. People don't resist change, they resist being changed. And there is a lot of really solid psychology behind this. When people are being resistant, we shouldn't blame them. We might maybe step back or look in the mirror and ask, well, does that mean people are being resistant to my idea? And again, instead of judging them for not going along, we can maybe kind of turn that around and ask, well, what can we do to better engage them? I think there's a provocative question that comes from the field of counseling. Do we, as leaders or change agents, do we want to be right? Or do we want to help others change? And I've struggled with this, and I've reflected on this. So I, can, I can sit down behind a keyboard, Mr. Blogger, you know? Internationally recognized, I mean, somebody in Toronto once said, hey, are you Mark Graven? And I'm like, <laughs> internationally recognized. Do we want to be right? I've written blog posts where I look back and say, boy, I was writing that. I was on fire. I was on a rant. I was right. And I think, boy, did that article really do anything to create positive change in the world? It feels good to write something or say something that says, boy, I'm right. But I'd like to see more change in the world than just sitting back and feeling satisfied that, well, I was right. So I was real fortunate at a conference a few years ago. I met a licensed social worker. I was at the Lean Startup Conference. And there was a social worker who was starting a nonprofit startup. And it was kind of a, a speed networking chance encounter. And we started talking, what do you do? What do you do? And I, I talked about Lean and trying to help people change. And she said, I think you'd be interested in this book about counseling. I've never read a book about counseling. I've never read a psychology textbook. And there's a comparison to kind of tee it up. Traditional counseling, addiction therapy, is often built around the idea of telling the patient or the client that they're wrong. You need to stop doing such and such. You need to start doing this. That creates sort of an equal and opposite reaction of pushback. And so counselors have learned they can't fall back on being correct. Telling somebody they should stop doing something doesn't really impart new information to the person that that counselor is trying to help. This is the challenge of an addiction. But even thinking of something a little bit, um, maybe a little bit more benign, my dentist or the dental hygienist will tell me, you need to floss more. I've heard that three times a year for as long as I can remember. They are right that I should floss more, but that doesn't necessarily help me change. So I think there are lessons around the idea we can't make others change. We can create conditions and have conversations that allow others to choose to change, 
And that's where this more modern approach to addiction counseling called motivational interviewing actually has a lot of great applications in a workplace if we're trying to help others change. So we recognize that change is a process. It's not like flipping a light switch. It's a process we can help people work through. So one of the key methods of motivational interviewing would be for a dentist or a hygienist to ask a question like, hey, Mark, what are some reasons for flossing every day? And I would say, well, my gums will be healthier. I'll have less plaque buildup. See, like these are things I know, but it didn't mean I was flossing every day. But this process of asking questions and drawing out from the person you're trying to help is proven as I articulate these reasons for change, that activates the part of your brain that makes action more likely. So I think there's this interesting difference between being the expert who's right and telling someone what to do versus asking them about their motivations, hence the name motivational interviewing. So the core book that that social worker recommended to me is quite readable as far as psychology tech. I don't know, I have one data point. It was more readable than I thought it would be. That motivational interviewing is a collaborative, I think that's a key word, goal-oriented style of communication with particular attention to the language of change. So why do people choose not to change? And I think it's important to frame it that way. It's not that they're not choosing to go along with you. They're choosing to keep doing things the way they're doing it. So in motivational interviewing, we talk about change talk, talk that is indicative of change and progress versus sustained talk. And I'll share some examples here. When the sustained talk outweighs the change talk, people tend to stay where they are. Motivational interviewing is designed to strengthen someone's personal commitment for, motivation for, and commitment to a goal. And within this, it's not just a matter of tools and tactics. There's a spirit, which I think kind of reminds me of lean. You could say there's, there's a, a spirit of lean. This idea that you are collaborating between the practitioner and the client, which is different than putting yourself up on a pedestal as the expert. And I realize I'm saying that up on a pedestal, evoking the client's ideas about change, emphasizing the autonomy of the client, that I respect your right to not make that change. So I can sit behind a keyboard as a blogger and complain about executives who aren't embracing lean and healthcare. Does that really help? Maybe I need to respect their perspectives and their choices and do so in a way that's compassionate empathetic. So we want to listen for change talk as we're having conversations about change. We can look for what MI calls preparatory language, desire to change, people talking about their ability to change, reasons for change, needs for change, which are even stronger. And then at some point, that moves into what's called mobilization language getting closer to action, commitment, activating, which means I'm ready to take action, and then finally, taking steps. So there's an acronym here, darn, or mnemonic, darn cat. We want to hear more of this change talk 
and lead conversations in a way that encourages more and more change talk. Because again, when that change talk outweighs the sustained talk, that's when people tend to take action toward change. There are skills in motivational interviewing. Here's another mnemonic, ORs. Open-ended questions. We hear a lot about this in lean coaching. Uh, we want to lead by asking questions. We want to ask Socratic questions, and that's good. But motivational interviewing uh, kind of helps expand upon that. We can actually make statements that are helpful that aren't open-ended questions. There's a time and a place for giving affirmations, giving reflections, building upon what someone has said through supportive statements and providing summaries of what you're hearing. So people might say, well, yeah, but, you know, but, but those people are just being resistant. It's like, you can spare me the psychology mumbo jumbo. Those people just, they hate change. They're being resistant. Motivational interviewing teaches us, and, and this is the book I would actually recommend as a first read, Motivational Interviewing for Leadership, a book about applications in the workplace. That resistance is too often a term that seems to treat a normal part of the change process as something pathological without thinking about how we as leaders might be contributing to that issue. So I think one of the key takeaways is to stop blaming others for being stuck in the process of change. There are stages of change. Change is a process. It's not an event. Some of these things we might describe as resistance are a part of a process that we all naturally work through. My thought process of deciding I am going to floss before bed every day, or I am going to floss after every meal. There's that pre-contemplation. There's I'm not even aware of there being an issue. There's contemplation, preparation, action, and then maintenance, which you might call sustainment. We'll be right back. So instead of using the word resistance, motivational interviewing, I think, provides a different word that might be a little bit more helpful. This word, ambivalence. Is this a, just a softer way of saying the same thing? Dylan's not resistant to change. He's just ambivalent. I mean, I, does that... But I think there's an important point there of realizing when someone is in that change process, when they're not yet taking action, they're on, as the psychologists say, they're on both sides of the fence. They want to change, but they also have reasons not to. And the more we push and shove and try to force them to change, the more that other person is just going to push back. It's a natural instinct. If I were to say, Adam, get up and move to a table in the back of the room. You're looking at me like, what? no, I'm not going to do that. And you're, you're right to do that. I didn't even try to pretend to articulate a reason for change. Adam, what are your motivations for moving to the back of the room? I don't I mean, this is not about making people do what we want them to do. This is not about manipulating people using clever psychological tactics. It's about engaging people in helping them move forward in changes that are in their best interest. And just because it changes in someone's best interest doesn't mean it's easy to change. This is why people get caught in addictions. It's logical and rational that somebody should stop this addictive behavior. 
but it's really difficult for people to do that. So in the workplace, there's, uh, there's a, a former Toyota leader, Ron Oslin, who uses and trademarked an interesting phrase. He said, well, leaders or people aren't resistant to change. They're addicted to the status quo. So what do we mean by addicted? The one clinical definition of addiction is actions that we take even though we know they are harmful. But people feel trapped in that anyway. So I would certainly point you to Ron. I've I've taken a day-long class with Ron. The Lean Enterprise Institute hosted a webinar that Ron did. And he, again, he's a former Toyota leader who talks about how they taught these methods to managers at Toyota to help employees work through the change process. And when I heard him say that about a year ago, that was this big epiphany. I'd never heard anybody from Toyota talk about this, the idea of counseling, not just being a coach, but sort of acting more like a counselor. So when I think of my own ambivalence, change talk might include, and and I will struggle with this over the next two days, I need to stop playing with my phone. I should pay attention. I want to be more respectful to people. But then, I mean, not in this exact setting, there might be sustained talk. Well, I'm not needed in this meeting anyway. I might rationalize or excuse the bad behavior. So if I'm trying to help myself or if somebody's trying to help me with this, instead of just telling me or scolding me, put the phone away, which might lead to some compliance. We'd have a conversation about, Mark, what are your motivations uh, for not playing with your phone so much when you should be paying attention? That's a conversation. When I think about writing my book, I, was re- I struggled with this. I had change talk. I need to write a book. I'm going to write it. I want to finish it. I will finish it. That's change talk. But then there was also sustained talk. Well, but I'm busy. There's some fear. What if I write it and people don't like it? The best way to alleviate that fear is to not publish the book and not take that chance. So I was caught in personal ambivalence. Even though I thought writing a book was clearly a good, positive thing to do, we we get stuck. So one thing that was really helpful to me was not a licensed counselor, per se, but a book coach. I think as coaches, you have an appreciation for how a coach can help you and not just being the coach to others. So one thing my book coach recommended, and and, and she helped with the writing process and motivation, and she was someone I could talk to about fears and uncertainties about the book. And one thing she suggested to her authors, which reminds me of motivational interviewing, and this might seem corny as all get up. Jeff, don't judge me for my corniness. I created this document, and I printed it out, and I put it on my desk, this daily pledge. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. So I didn't just print this out and post it on the wall, because then it becomes wallpaper that we ignore and tune out. But going through the process of actually saying these words out loud is a great lesson for motivational interviewing. This idea of not change thought but change talk, that there's something in the connections of our brains when we say things out loud that are change talk, that activates our brain in a way that pushes us forward. That's really helpful. 
And I think this was helpful of giving those reminders and talking about motivations and commitments that I was really just making to myself to try to hold myself accountable. So I think these ideas are helpful thinking of your own motivations and ambivalence. But I think in the workplace, it's more likely that we're trying to help others get past their own ambivalence. So one of the things we have to be really careful about is what motivational interviewing calls the writing reflex. And to try to ignore or not fall into that trap. As motivational interviewing calls it, the writing reflex is the desire to fix what seems wrong with people and to set them on a better course, relying in particular on directing. Mark, put your phone away. That's directive. That creates pushback. And I don't think it's because I'm uniquely oppositional. It's just this equal and opposite reaction. If you tell someone to do something, their brain immediately goes to why they don't have to or why they don't want to. And triggering that thought, or it may come out as talk, about why they don't want to, that sustained talk actually hampers their progress in that change cycle. So rather than beating people up for being resistant, we shouldn't necessarily beat ourselves up for falling into this trap of the writing reflex. It is human nature to tell others what to do. It's well-intended. You may have that other person's best interest at heart. It's well-intended. You're trying to be helpful, but the trap is it doesn't work, or it's far less likely to work than this process of engaging people in their motivations. A year ago, I was here in Austin at the Lean Coaching Summit, and there was a really inspirational group up on stage from a nonprofit called Beyond Emancipation. You remember these, this group. They help kids who have aged out of the foster care system and are kind of left on their own, and they have a lot of struggles, and they need a lot of help. The woman from this organization was reflecting, and she said, I spent eight years telling foster kids what to do, and it was exhausting. She didn't frame it necessarily in the context of motivational interviewing, but I thought, well, that, that sounds familiar. It was well-intended. They're a nonprofit full of loving, caring people who are trying to help others, and through their own process, they came to reflect and realize those well-intended behaviors weren't really helping the foster kids change. And that was really their mission and their passion. So what does work is evoking people's motivations. I'll share some examples of this briefly. Guiding that conversation in a way and actually doing more listening than talking you want to increase the amount of change talk that you hear and try to reduce or steer people away from their sustained talk if they're falling into that trap of talking themselves out of changing. So what they learned at Beyond Emancipation is this idea of evoking and drawing out from others. This sounds like lean thinking to me. We believe that the person closest to the problem is closest to the solution. I think this is respectful. I think it's, it, it's proven to be effective. I want to share an example from a workplace. There was a hospital manager that, was, that I was sent to go coach. And this is a trap to be careful about. 
right? Somebody has to really give you permission to coach them. You need to build some relationships and, you know, people are going to have their guard up. And so I was asking some open-ended questions. What do you want to talk about? What are you trying to make progress on? And she said, I know I need to do these daily gamble walks and huddles. And she said, I'm stuck. And I thought, that makes me think of motivational interviewing. She wasn't being resistant to lean management practices. She was stuck in the state of ambivalence. So I could have stood there and said, well, you need to do that every day. This is proven to be effective doing these daily gimbal walks. If I went into telling expert mode, that's probably not really going to be helpful. It feels good. It's tempting. It's an instinct. So I heard change talk. She would say things like, well, I need to do those huddles every day. And so I might give an affirmation that says, well, you're, you're really trying. This means a lot to you. That's not an open-ended question, but it's a helpful statement that keeps her talking and maybe triggers more change talk, as opposed to the sustained talk. You know, I know I need to do this, but it's really hard to make time. So we look for that change talk. If they're saying things like, I want to do daily huddles, I could start doing daily huddles. If I do that, we'll improve more. There's a good reason. If that leader is saying things like this, that leader is more likely to be getting closer to action. I've got to engage my people more. And then there's mobilization. I'm going to do this. I'm ready to start. I'm taking action. Then there might be trouble with maintenance. There might be trouble with doing it every day. So trying to keep out of the expert trap and the writing reflex We want to encourage more change talk, to shift that balance. And so when someone is stuck, there are a couple really helpful questions. And so I asked, this comes straight from motivational interviewing. So on a scale of 0 to 10, with 10 being most important and 0 being not at all important, how important is it for you to do those daily gimbal walks and huddles? And she might say, uh, six, kind of classic, sort of stuck in the middle. She knows it's important, and she wants to do it, and she needs to do it, but she's not always doing it. So here's the follow-up question that's really critical. Why did you say six instead of zero? Or why did you say six instead of three? You're always anchoring it back on the lower number. Because here's sort of the magic trick that happens. I I shouldn't call it a magic trick. The important thing that happens is that follow-up question triggers change talk. Why did you say six instead of three? Well, because, you know, my people are really counting on me. We set an expectation that we should do those daily huddles. So, you know, so she's, she's articulating more and more change talk. If you asked, why did you say six instead of ten? Now you're triggering talk of barriers, obstacles, reasons not, excuses. You're inadvertently triggering sustained talk, which has proven to not help someone move up that curve of uh, commitment. And then there's the second question. On a scale of 0 to 10, how confident are you that you can make that change? So these two things are important, commitment and confidence. You might have somebody who's really highly committed to doing huddles, 
But maybe they say, well, my confidence is a two because maybe they're afraid they're not doing it right. So that makes them afraid to go out and fail or struggle or be embarrassed in front of their employees. So asking that same follow-up question of, well, why do you say two instead of zero? They'll give you little snippets of the positive, the change talk, and you can build upon that by asking follow-up questions, open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, summaries. Yeah, I, I, don't feel, I don't feel confident. I don't feel very confident. I feel a two. And then you can ask questions that try to continue that other person's process of talking themselves into change. This idea, again, that being right doesn't mean others will go along with us. We talked about this yesterday in our change management workshop in a little bit different context. Organizations that struggle because they have the right solution or the right idea, but people aren't buying into it. Or some people aren't buying into it. So instead of labeling them as bad people, we need to invest time and have those conversations. I think there's a lean expression that fits here, the idea of you need to go slow to go fast. Engaging people, evoking their motivations for change, helping them plan what they are going to do, that takes more time. Sort of like the idea of going out and doing those huddles and gamble walks and engaging people to speak up and implement their own ideas, that's more time consuming as well. So we can tell leaders, and here's the trap I try to avoid myself, to tell people they need to go and engage others. Well, maybe I should be engaging that leader in helping her come to the conclusion that she's going to go out and engage others. Of make sure we're not forcing bottom-up improvement in an implied top-down way. But again, it's human nature, and we can try to fight human nature. Do we want to be right, or do we want to help others change? And again, as I've tried to share here, this is something I've reflected on if not beating myself up over at times, of like things I did in the past that maybe weren't helpful. It felt good in the moment, so maybe I'm addicted to telling others what they should do beyond it just being an instinct. I think if we reframe resistance and talk about ambivalence, not expect that resistance to go away at the flick of a light switch, and think about ambivalence and moving people along. We can start conversations about change, and we can practice. We can practice asking these questions. We can practice asking about people's motivations and get better at this as we go. So I'm trying to practice some of these methods and techniques, incorporating it into my own coaching and work with organizations. So I'm going to make an offer If you are feeling stuck, you know, professionally about something you need to do, should be doing, want to be doing, but you feel like you're in that state of ambivalence where you see both sides, I want to change, but I'm struggling with it. If you're on both sides of the fence, I'd be willing to do a phone call or a web meeting, a video chat or something where we can talk through this 
in the spirit of trying to help you help yourself through this change process. Maybe that might be uh, mutually beneficial and there, there's a way you can schedule um, time with me online. Um, so with that, I, I hope this is thought-provoking, that it wasn't off-putting in terms of telling you you need to stop telling. I was all too aware of that irony and that possible trap, so please forgive me for that. Because these are ideas I'm excited about, right? So you have that tendency to go, hey, hey, Jet, come to this workshop with me. Come watch this webinar. You're like, well, man, no, come on. I don't want to. So we'll talk about motivations some other time. But anyway, I, I hope this has been helpful. Thank you again for letting me talk.